Good morning, everyone. It's really lovely to see you all. Lots of folk, maybe you're back after some weeks of holiday over August. If so, welcome back. Hope you had a good holiday. And um, we start a new series today, which I've called A Story of Wisdom and Love. Just before we turn to that, there's a couple of things I'd just ask, like to ask you to be praying about. Uh, first of all, our building project. Uh, some of you will be more familiar with the long saga of our building project than others. But essentially, at the moment, um, we're negotiating with, the, um, with our, our partner, our, uh, the contractor, the developer that we're working with, and trying to find uh, a new set of proposals that will be, A, financially viable, and B, acceptable to us and all the other parties who have an interest in it. And as you can imagine, that's a challenging negotiation. There is still a fair distance between us. Uh, having said that, we've seen a little bit of progress, and I'm hopeful, uh, remain hopeful, you've got to be hopeful, I mean, pray and be hopeful, um, that, uh, that we'll be able to find a way through all of this. Please particularly pray for um, Paul Ginger and Peter Bailey, who, who are sort of our interface with Thornset, that, that the Lord will give them wisdom. Uh, we're really grateful for all they're doing. Thanks, Peter. And um, yeah, a lot of patience, a lot of wisdom required, so... Um, so we'd ask for your prayers about that. And I'd also like you to pray for our worship pastor, um, uh, Chris Rowe, who is, uh, has been off work sick with glandular fever for a few weeks now. How is he today? Is it... He's getting there. And he's missing everybody. So um, he is, sends his love and he is planning to start resume some light duties next week. I mean, my prayer really would be that the Lord would give him wisdom to know how much to do and what, what not to do because we want him to get better properly and so I'm encouraging him just to not overdo things but um, yeah please do be praying for him. Now before we get started a little piece of sort of trivia for you. Um, Oprah Winfrey is named after a character in the story, did you know that? She is named after, probably some of you did, she's named after Orpah who we've read about but her aunt Ida who sent a relative along to register the birth, the person who went uh, got the name wrong and so spelt it opera rather than opera, hence Oprah Winfrey. And now there's quite a lot of uh, children or young people, I guess, or in America who are named after Oprah Winfrey. Uh, I don't know if all of them realise they've been named after a sort of wrong spelling of the character in, in the story, but I just, I just like that little, uh, that little piece of trivial information. It makes me laugh and smile. Um, the Book of Ruth, uh, which I've entitled here A Story of Wisdom and Love, I think is a thing of beauty. Um, it, it really focuses on three main characters. Uh, uh, Ruth, obviously, the central character, and her relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and uh, we won't cover it today, but later in the story, this character, Boaz. And essentially, it's a simple story. A child could read it and understand it, no problem. Um, but its emotional depth is, is great. Um, it's a very moving story of just simple, not just ordinary, but in the world's eyes, unimportant, insignificant people behaving quite well and, um, and the good that can come out of that. Um, perhaps you could uh, bring up the next slide, please. Um, 
There's a, a verse that I like very much at the end of, towards the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, you'll be familiar with it, I'm sure. He says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Or as I interpret it, fill your mind with such things. And so much that comes to us through the media is, is the worst aspects of human nature. I mean, there's... There's, there's so much that we could focus on that fills our newspapers and so on. And, and actually, when we turn to Ruth, we're doing what Paul instructed. We're filling our minds with something different. We're filling our minds with people behaving well. And, uh, and it's an inspirational story. We can all identify, I think, with at least one of those three characters and see them as an inspiration for our life. Um, so it's a beautiful book. In our world where... So many are being encouraged to find identity by looking inside and trying to locate it somewhere in there and then bring it out and, and insist that the world adjusts to them. Here we see three people who are finding identity in their relationships. And I want to suggest to you that is a far better, more secure way of finding purpose and identity in life, in relationship with others. Uh, obviously, in this story, as we'll see, relationship with God, first and foremost, being the anchor, but that inevitably leading towards good relationships with other people. Um, so it's a beautiful story. I find it moving. I can quite easily be moved to tears if I think about these characters. There's something beautiful about their honourable, their simple, honourable, wise behaviour under as we'll see in a moment or two, great suffering and tragedy. Now, the story takes place in the time, we're told, of the judges. In the first words, they're in the days when the judges ruled. And really, this covers a period of Israelite history between uh, Joshua's conquest of the Promised Land, if you know your Old Testament history, and the emergence of the kings, the first king, King Saul. There's this gap of, what, uh, 350 years or something like that, um, between uh, Joshua, who was the first of these judges, and, uh, and the emergence of the monarchy. And it's a time of, if you read the book of Judges, which immediately precedes Ruth, it's a time of some spiritual and material chaos in Israel. Um, it's, a, it's a time when the, the people keep falling away from God and then some kind of charismatic figure emerges and exerts some godly authority for a while and things get better and then that person disappears off the scene. And in the absence of godly authority, people sort of fall away from following Yahweh. And, and you, this is summed up right at the end of the book of Judges in the verses immediately preceding our text. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So it's, it's picturing a, a, a situation not unlike our own culture where there is a widespread failure of leadership and so people are turning to their own individual lives trying to construct their own meaning and purpose because there's very little to unify people by way of godly leadership. Um, and into that big picture, suddenly we narrow our focus right down to these three individuals. But as we'll see by the end of the book, you see that these three individuals, insignificant in worldly terms though they are, are about to play a massively significant role in God's 
salvation of the world. And although there's no obvious miracles or anything in this book, and although it never says that God sort of does anything directly, his fingerprints are all over this story in the mysterious way that he operates in and through human beings. One of the other things that's very significant about this book is this emphasis um, that comes out in the narrative that is already stamped all over the Old Testament and indeed the New, that God has a particular concern for the poor. Uh, In Deuteronomy uh, 10, verse 18, but I mean countless other verses that we could look at in the Old Testament, we're told that God has a particular concern for three groups, widows, orphans, and foreigners. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly what we've got here. This is a story about widows, orphans, and foreigners, right? God is particularly concerned for those. And so uh, uh, a very clear statement that any relationship with Yahweh, with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that does not issue in concern for the poor is inauthentic. Jesus said it. It's right through the scriptures. And of course, what we're reading about when we're reading the story of these humanly very insignificant people, we are reading the story of Jesus' family tree. Very important to bear that in mind. I mean, you've got a widow. A widow who's lost her sons, has no means of providing for herself, who has left Israel and gone to live in Moab, which is one of Israel's enemies, and her Moabite daughter-in-law, who has lost her husband. This is, these are very unpromising people to work with at one level. They're exactly the sort of people God loves to use. Okay. So we're just going to spend a few moments reflecting on the experience of the two main characters in our, our well, two main characters in our, in our reading, which is firstly Naomi and, and then Ruth. But today, most of the time, we're going to spend thinking about Naomi. Could I have the next slide, please? I just want you to think about where Naomi is at this point in the story. Our Christian spirituality, and particularly that marked by a sort of charismatic or Pentecostal spirituality, very much wants to emphasize God's goodness and his salvation, not just salvation from sin in Jesus Christ, but the way, and we've heard it this morning, in the way in which he saves us and intrudes on our experience in a really good way. And that's all good, right? But there is a danger in it. And the danger in it is we so emphasize the way that God save us from difficult circumstances we end up with very little in the way of an understanding of God's activity when we are suffering. So we start to see suffering as an abnormal condition that God always wants to save us from immediately. Now, it's entirely natural when we're suffering that that we want to escape that suffering. But the Bible, if you read it with your eyes open, leaves you in no doubt that God is quite prepared to see his people suffer. That's tough to say that but it is just true. And any spirituality that denies that is neither true to the scriptures nor to human experience. 
And the only way you can maintain it is sort of by a sort of pathological attempt to suppress both what the Bible says and reality and sort of maintain a chipper uh, attitude to life even when things are going wrong. I don't think that's particularly helpful. Well, I think, in fact, I think it's, it's really quite destructive. We need to be authentic. Authentic to what the scriptures say. Authentic to what actually happens in life. So let's just think about what, what Naomi experienced. And it's about as profound a personal tragedy as any person could experience, I think. She lost her husband. And both her children. Both her sons. Now, I, I'm not aware that anyone here has had a comparable experience, although if you have, forgive me, I'm just not aware of it. But can you imagine for a moment? It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? I don't suggest you try and imagine it for too long because it's, it's an overwhelming thought. And there's this thing that just breaks my heart, not, not least because as those of you who know me know, it's a little bit close to home. She doesn't want to be called Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant or delightful. And I found that to be true in my life. I mean, genuinely, that's not just a funny comment. That is genuinely true. And the thought that my wife might get to a point where she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter, is heartbreaking. And you don't have to be a pastor for long before you see people for whom reality has turned bitter. It's true. It happens to Christians. It happens to non-Christians. It's part of living in this world. And when it happens, the authentic spiritual response is obviously to plead with God. That's normal. But it's also to lament. That is the faithful response to tragedy if you're a Christian. Because that's authentic, but it also is the expression of faith. So if you look at what uh, Naomi says in this passage, she isn't a person who's given up on God. She hasn't become embittered. Don't read that by what she says. Because she's still got a good heart. She's, she blesses her two daughters-in-law. There's nine blessings in the book of Ruth. And the first of them is what she says, "'Return home, my daughters.'" Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you've always shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She hasn't become bitter. She's still got a heart to bless others. But she personally has, has nothing left in her life, and she expresses that to God. It's a lament. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. If God is Almighty, then that means at one level he is responsible for everything that happens. Christians try and get him off the hook in various ways, but the maths is relatively straightforward. If God is in control of everything, then he is responsible for everything that happens. And Naomi doesn't try and get God off the hook. She doesn't theologize this, say, well, I'm, I'm sure that God uh, didn't do this. This is something else. No, she, she says, God, God brought this on me. But she's not without faith because she laments. The person without faith would, would, 
would just turn off her relationship with God. That's not what's happening. She remains authentic. She remains in contact with, with God. Now, it may be that as you look at your life right now, you're in this moment of feeling life is bitter. Or maybe not, but the truth is that moment will come for all of us. When it does for you, I, I pray that God will sustain you, even when you can't feel him. And I pray that you'll stay honest in your relationship with God. You'll talk to him honestly. You won't sort of try and get God off the hook. You'll be honest about it. And you'll speak to God and you'll lament before him and call upon him. And I pray that like Naomi, you'll still have a heart to bless others. Your spiritual example is a lot stronger when you're in the middle of trouble than when everything is easy. Look at this woman. It couldn't have been worse and she still has a heart to bless. Try to resist this morning the temptation to resolve. We know, we know that there's going to be a more positive ending to this story, but nothing's going to change the fact she lost her husband and her two sons, right? But try, when we are with people in the midst of sorrow, try not to just sort of spiritually resolve it. In this life, Jesus said, you will have trouble. She has had trouble. Nevertheless, despite all of that, God is at work but not in any way that Naomi would have chosen for herself. So where does that leave us with God? I believe God's a good God and he wants to bless us. And in Jesus, he will. The future is secure. But the way to that future, goodness only knows what he'll lead us through. And um, it's not simple now, in one sense, Naomi's destiny was far greater than she could ever have imagined. And if you'd have said to her, if you could sort of meet her in this moment and say to her, 3,000 years later, in a place which currently doesn't exist called Pearly, some people will be looking at your spiritual example and they'll be honoring you as an ancestor of King David and even more significantly, the Lord Jesus. And they'll be learning from the way that you managed to sustain your faith in these terrible circumstances. She couldn't have imagined it. Would she have chosen to go through that, to have that legacy? The way God makes us fruitful for him may be through great pain. It was for Jesus. Have we any right to expect anything different? All right. God is at work, but he is at work in ways that very often are beyond our understanding. His future for us is beyond our imagining. But the way we get there very often is, is very painful. Well, God does begin to work, and really the first way he works is through this, this young woman, Ruth. Perhaps we could have the next slide. And obviously she's the heroine of the story. And um, 
The first thing to observe, and I've made the point already, but just to underline it, is they're both people of zero state status. I mean, just nothing. The contemporary for us would be people living in the camps in Calais. They've got nothing. They are nothing. They've got no education to fall back on. They've got nothing. Humanly speaking, there is no hope for these two. They're refugees. That's what they are. And refugees without much hope of, of, of finding any way forward. They're essentially going back to Bethlehem. Incidentally, Bethlehem means house of bread, which is obviously significant in the context. They're going back to Bethlehem, essentially hoping to be able to glean, which was something that, that the poor were able to do in Israel. If they had no other means of providing for themselves, they would be able to glean and just go along after people in the fields had done their harvesting and just pick up whatever had been left behind. Um, and the, but the first hope for Naomi is in what I'm going to call Ruth's conversion, because it seems to me in, in verses 16 and 17, you've got a very clear statement of, of conversion to the worship of Yahweh. Ruth says, stop urging me to go back. Now, should Naomi have been telling these two Moabite women, to go back to their gods. It doesn't seem like very good evangelism, does it? But she does it. She's saying, look, realistically, that's what you've got to do. You've got to go back to your families and, and hopefully maybe find a husband amongst the Moabite people. And, and Orpah does that, of course. But Ruth's not having any of it. She says, no, no, no. I'm going I'm to make a statement, a deep statement of commitment here. And firstly, it is a commitment to your God. He's going to be my God from now on. And secondly, and this is always the case, actually, with any genuine conversion to the worship of, of Yahweh, or as we now know him, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that immediately there is a commitment to him, there is a commitment to people. If that wasn't taught you when you were converted, I'm sorry, because you really didn't get the full picture of what salvation means. You know, if you are a true Christian, it's God's desire for you that you will die in church. I don't mean that literally. It is God, although who knows. Uh, it is God's desire that you will die in communion with the other people for whom Jesus died. One well, very saddest thing, and, and I remember John Stott saying, I hope you're not that monster, the unchurched Christian. There are loads of them around the place. They've divorced their personal faith in God from connection with God's people. There's a lot of reasons why it happens. But unfortunately, it's a bit like saying... I, I want to be made well. I'm unhealthy. I want to be made well, but purely for selfish reasons. It's always God's purpose that a relationship with him issues in renewed relationships with those, transforming relationships with those around you. And um, it just spells out something very important for us in our highly individualistic culture, and that is this. It is God's will for you to find, for me, to find purpose in our network of relationships. 
and in being a loyal, faithful, truthful, honorable, honest, generous, kind person as the Spirit strengthens us with those who are around us. That's how you find purpose in life. You will not find purpose in life on an endless quest to be true to how you feel inside. Because how you feel today will be very different from how you'll feel tomorrow. That is a very, very shaky foundation for any sense of identity. Whereas relationships are meant to be the bedrock of our lives. Firstly, our relationship with God, through which we receive all the resources we need to start building authentic relationships with others. So this story of wisdom and love starts with two insignificant, broken people. These two insignificant, broken people form a strong relationship founded in Yahweh. Humanly speaking, this is nothing. It's not going to make the front page of any news. No one's going to bother to put it on social media. It's unimportant. From God's perspective, it is of critical significance. The whole of history, the whole of salvation history is coming down the line and it's all resting on this relationship. Significance in life is found in rock-solid relationships founded on Yahweh. God bless you.